Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Pick 6 Movies. If this is your first time around, what we do on the show is we take a movie uh, based around a common theme and uh, five others just like it. In this case, you are listening to Season 8. Not that one, this one. About uh, movies that uh, got remade and maybe the remakes weren't so good. We're going to tell you a little bit about how, when, where, and why these movies got made. And then, at no charge to you, loyal listeners, you're going to get a whole review of me and my old buddy Chad talking about this movie and goofing on it a little bit. Here in episode 4 of season 8, we find ourselves discussing Fantastic Four. No, not that one with Captain America. This one, without likable, charismatic people in it. But that's enough out of me. Let's get to the great introduction from Chad this time around, and then on to the shenanigans. Chad, intro me! The very first superhero movie featured a dashing, wealthy playboy who would transform into a caped crime fighter to battle villains of the underworld and corrupt government of his hometown. He concealed his true identity in a signature all-black costume accompanied by a black mask concealing his face with only his dark, piercing eyes visible to strike fear into his enemies. He was a master of acrobatics, trained in hand-to-hand combat, and an expert in various weapons, including his signature weapon of choice, a slender, sleek, ornate-handled full-length rapier that was used to mark his single-letter signature Z on defeated foes and objects. Wait, that's not Batman. That's Zorro. Yeah, it was Zorro, as dashingly played by Douglas Fairbanks, who swashbuckled his way onto the silver screen, fighting for the rights of the downtrodden and the oppressed in the 1920 silent film, The Mark of Zorro. Now, I know what you're thinking. Zorro wasn't really a superhero. He doesn't have any real superpowers, which, by that logic, well, Batman isn't a superhero either. You know what? Let's let comic book scholars argue that point on some subreddit somewhere else. Now, if you're going to have a superhero movie, you got to have superheroes. And in the United States, the comic book superhero really didn't emerge on the printed page until 1928, when Superman debuted. Then Batman showed up in 1939, Captain America in the spring of 1941, and Wonder Woman showed up later that December. This was the golden age of comics, which later ushered in the silver age of comics in the 1960s. That era generated iconic characters like Iron Man, Spider-Man, the Hulk, and the X-Men, many of whom we now know as big screen superhero movie stars. But the first true superhero movie by modern standards was a 12-chapter movie serial. Movie serials were a series of short movies that advanced the story each week until the series was finally completed. And in 1942, The Adventures of Captain Marvel was released. It was based on a Fawcett comic superhero who would later go on to live in the DC Universe. It centered on the young Billy Batson who transformed into a godlike superhero and battled the supervillain Scorpion. And it had all the hallmarks of a modern day superhero story. It was an origin story, he had a secret identity, there was an arch nemesis, action, adventure, it was all there. 
And the success of Captain Marvel led to other superheroes getting their own movie serials. A 15-episode movie serial of Batman appeared in 1943, where audiences saw not only a live-action Batman, but also his young ward, Robin. Superhero movie serials of the popular comic The Phantom also arrived that same year, as did serials for Captain America. In 1948, The Man of Steel got his own matinee serial, which led to Superman making his way to the small screen for a weekly television show. But as the 40s drew to a close, so ended the run of superhero serials and the presence of superheroes on the silver screen. It wasn't until the 1960s that a superhero returned to the big screen when Adam West and Burt Ward starred as the dynamic duo first in the Batman television series, which led them to the silver screen in a hastily rushed cash grab of a movie cleverly titled Batman the Movie. And after the release of this marginally successful film, it would be 12 years until a superhero returned to movie theaters. And it turns out that the very first comic book superhero, Superman, would be the one to usher in a new era of superhero movies on the silver screen. In 1978, director Richard Donner brought Superman the Movie to the big screen and proved to audiences that a man could fly. Now, if you want to hear more about the legacy of Superman movies, please check out Pick 6 Movies Season 5, Episode 1 on Supergirl. Now, when Superman came out, you got to remember, this was in the late 1970s. Audiences were in a world where Star Wars was a real thing. And this was a time when special effects were, well, special. And at the time, special effects were making leaps and bounds so advanced that audiences were blown away by what movie makers were bringing to the big screen. The cinematic adaptation of Superman featured Christopher Reeve as both Clark Kent and Superman, and it really set a standard of not only what a superhero movie could be, but what it should be. Fun, earnest, exciting, and believable. All of which the makers of Superman managed to mostly duplicate in the 1980 sequel, Superman 2. And when someone makes a quality product that people love and it makes a ton of money, the inevitable happens. Cheap knockoffs come rolling in. There were quite a few small screen adaptations of superhero characters that popped up during the renaissance of superhero movies. CBS ran The Incredible Hulk from 1977 to 1982 starring Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. Linda Carter was Wonder Woman from 1975 to 1979. There were live action small screen adaptations of Spider-Man, Captain America, and even Doctor Strange had a TV show all during the late 70s. Not surprisingly, most of these shows were terrible by today's standards. None of these television series came close to capturing the magic of Superman the movie or its sequel Superman 2. This inability of small screen superhero shows to capture the magic of those first two Superman movies was reflected in Superman's third and fourth installments as well. These sequels both starred actor Christopher Reeve as the Man of Steel, but they failed to deliver the quality of the first two Superman movies. This decline in production value was primarily a reflection of the Superman film rights switching hands and stewardship. And as the film series quality declined, so too did audience attendance and their expectations. Low-budget superhero movies were more the rule rather than the exception. Swamp Thing, Flash Gordon, Condor Man, Masters of the Universe, Howard the Duck, they all came across as scrapped-together campy films that disappointed true fans of the series and were not appealing to wider audiences because, well, they all kind of sucked. 
It wasn't until failed Disney animator Tim Burton delivered 1989's Batman, starring Beetlejuice's own Michael Keaton as the Cape Crusader and Jack Nicholson as the Joker, in a stylish comic book adaptation of the iconic detective slash crime fighter for the big screen. Batman's success was an unparalleled phenomenon that set the standard of a new era of superhero movies that much like Superman raised the bar on what a superhero movie could be and what it should be. And in this case, it was grittier and darker. It was a movie made by comic book fans for comic book fans. And just like in the late 1970s, the 1990s showed up with its own collection of successful superhero imitators and disastrous knockoffs. This new Batman spawned three sequels featuring three different actors donning the Batman cowl, each to varying levels of critical and commercial success. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Crow, The Mask, well, they all leapt from the pages of the comics to the big screen and audiences were mostly thrilled. Other adaptations of lesser-known comics such as Spawn, Judge Dredd, and Tank Girl showed up and displayed an appetite for bringing independent comic book heroes to life on the big screen. But quality wasn't always the guiding light. Adaptations of The Punisher and Captain America both received the direct-to-video treatment because they were stinky movies and nobody would actually pay money to see them in the theater. And for a feature film to be a real financial success, it's gotta first be good enough to make its way into theaters for exhibition. And on May 31st, 1994, the first live-action, big-screen adaptation of The Fantastic Four was shown on the silver screen in just one theater. One single showing. And then, the original Fantastic Four movie disappeared. To understand why, we have to go back... 10 years to 1983, when superhero movie makers were busy trying to find ways to rip off those first two Superman movies, including the team looking to bring the Fantastic Four to theaters everywhere. The Fantastic Four debuted in The Fantastic Four Number 1 in November of 1961 by artist, co-plotter, and lesser-known creative genius Jack Kirby, along with his partner, king of the movie cameos, Stan Lee. In the original comic book, the Fantastic Four got their superpowers after being exposed to cosmic rays during a scientific mission in outer space. The Fantastic Four consists of Reed Richards, aka Mr. Fantastic, a super science nerd and the group's leader with Polly Walnut's temple gray hair. Mr. Fantastic can stretch his body parts into just about any shape. Whoa, any body part? Any shape? Who is he dating? Well, I'll tell you who he's dating. It's Sue Storm, otherwise known as the Invisible Girl, who can not only turn herself invisible, but she can also produce force fields around her as well. Sue has a younger brother, Johnny Storm, alias the Human Torch, who can surround himself with fire and fly around. And then there's Ben Grimm, known in some circles as The Thing. And he's a guy who is a giant rock creature who is also super strong. The Fantastic Four have a nemesis in Doctor Doom, and there's some other bad guys that they encounter, like Galactus and the Silver Surfer, among others. But let's go back to 1983, when people were just going bonkers over Superman 2. At this time, Stan Lee met with movie producer Bernd Eichner to discuss making a movie based on the Fantastic Four. But the film options for the Fantastic Four wouldn't be available for a few more years. Tenacity paid off and ultimately Eichner's company optioned the rights to the Fantastic Four 
for a quarter of a million dollars. There was some initial interest from Warner Brothers and Columbia Pictures in making a Fantastic Four movie, but the estimated cost to make the film was, at the time, ridiculously high. Nobody wanted to pony up the dollars needed to make such a special effects heavy film. What you need to know about movie options is that they expire, unless there is a movie actually in production in conjunction with said movie option. And the option to make a Fantastic Four movie was set to expire on December 31st, 1992, and there was no Fantastic Four movie in production. So Eichner did the only thing he could do to retain his option to the Fantastic Four. He got a low-budget Fantastic Four film in the works. Enter low-budget movie-making maestro Roger Corman. Corman came in and took a look at the Fantastic Four and said, I can make this movie for $1 million. And on December 28, 1992, three days before the option was set to expire, the Fantastic Four movie went into production. The movie was shot in under 25 days and was directed by music video director Ole Sasson, best known for his work behind the camera of Mr. Mr.'s Broken Wings and Is It Love music videos. This interpretation of the Fantastic Four was to have everything that you could ask for in a Fantastic Four movie. Mr. Fantastic was played by Alex Hyde-White, who is best known to everybody here at Pig Six Movie Productions as the guy from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, who is all dressed up like Indiana Jones at the beginning of the movie, but he ain't Indiana Jones, and he chases a not-dead-yet River Phoenix across the top of a circus train, resulting in comical and adventurous hijinks. Johnny Storm was played by Jay Underwood, who previously, and most famously, played Bug, the low-life boyfriend of John Candy's niece, Tia, in Uncle Buck. Sue Storm was played by Rebecca Staub, an actress with a lengthy resume of work in television and film. And Michael Bailey Smith played Ben Grimm, better known as The Thing. You may remember Michael Bailey Smith for his most famous role as Super Freddy in Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. Roger Corman's production of The Fantastic Four had a release date tentatively set for Memorial Day of 1993. Trailers ran and front of Corman's Jurassic Park knockoff, Carnosaur. Clips of the film were shown at San Diego Comic-Con, and then the release date of the movie was pushed out to January 19th of 1994. And the premiere was going to be held at the Mall of America in Minnesota, with proceeds benefiting the Ronald McDonald House and Children's Miracle Network. But sadly, that premiere was never to be. Producer Eichner went to the film's director and said, this Fantastic Four film would never be theatrically released. This led to rumors that the movie movie was never intended for theatrical release, but only to help Eichner maintain film rights to the Fantastic Four. In 2005, Stan Lee, the Where's Waldo of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he said in an interview with Screen Rant that the movie was never supposed to be shown to anybody, but the cast and crew didn't know that. Excelsior! Corman and Eichner countered that account and said that they did have a contract to release the movie and that the 91-year-old Stan Lee's version of the story was inaccurate. It later came out that executives with Marvel felt that releasing the movie broadly would cheapen the brand of the Fantastic Four because the movie was, well, cheap. And so the film was reportedly purchased for a couple million bucks and all of the prints of the movie were ordered to be destroyed. One hopes in a giant fire at night out in the field. But, as noted earlier, not every copy was destroyed and there was at least one public screening on May 31st, 1994. And thanks to the internet, you, yeah, you, can go see this $1 million version of the Fantastic Four online. There's also a fascinating documentary called Doomed, 
the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four that details the wild ride of a movie that reportedly nobody was ever meant to see. As the smoldering embers of the celluloid ashes that were once Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four movie slowly burned out one by one, Eichner began negotiating a legit big-budget adaptation of The Fantastic Four, one that would actually be produced for public viewing. The movie's production had a rotation of writers and directors that's harder to follow than a game of three-card Monty. At one point, Home Alone director Chris Columbus was attached to direct, then he stepped aside to have his production company produce the film. Peter Siegel, who had a string of comedies under his belt, Tommy Boy and The Nutty Professor 2, The Clumps, he was brought on to direct. But then he got replaced by Sam Weissman, who had helmed D2, The Mighty Ducks, and the big screen adaptation of George of the Jungle. And just the fact that these filmmakers were viewed as potential directors for the film showed that producers were going for a more comical, family-friendly approach to bringing this dysfunctional superhero family to the big screen. After extending the film rights for a few more years and a series of rewrites, Raja Gosnell was brought in to direct. Gosnell had directed the films Home Alone 3 and Big Mama's House, but he left to go direct the big screen adaptation of Scooby-Doo. Gosnell's exit saw Peyton Reed come in to eye the director's chair for a bit. Reed had previously directed the cheerleading extravaganza, Bring It On. And not for nothing, Peyton Reed would later go on to direct Ant-Man and its sequel. Those are really good movies. Peyton Reed's candidacy for the director's chair was short-lived, and then he too disappeared. Then finally, Tim Story showed up and claimed his rightful place in the director's chair for the Fantastic Four movie. Story was brought on because the producers were impressed by an early cut of the Queen Latifah, Jimmy Fallon action comedy, Taxi. I can't believe those words just came out of my mouth. In this updated big budget version of The Fantastic Four, Mr. Fantastic was played by Eoan Griffith. The Shield's Michael Chiklis played The Thing. Actress and future successful founder of The Honest Company, Jessica Alba was Sue Storm. And her brother Johnny Storm was played by none other than Captain America himself, Chris Evans. And last but not least, the bad guy in this movie was Victor Von Doom, played by Julian McMahon, who was riding high on his success with the FX reconstructive surgery dramatic television series Nip Tuck. With a director and cast and script in hand, production of the Fantastic Four reboot began in 2004 with a reported $90 million budget. And if my math is correct, that's 90 times more than the $1 million budget for the Roger Corman produced version. This Fantastic Four movie came out in theaters and was tops at the box office, pulling in $56 million during its first weekend. It ultimately grossed $330 million worldwide, and this success guaranteed a sequel. Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer. And the whole cast returned, along with the aforementioned edition of the Silver Surfer, and they also had Galactus as the bad guys. The sequel opened at number one at the box office, pulling in $58 million, but it failed to surpass the haul of its predecessor with only $290 million worldwide. The cast was originally signed to make three motion pictures, but since critical and financial response to the sequel did not meet expectations, the franchise was put on hold in 2007, placing the Fantastic Four's future in film in a fatal state of flux. That was until two short years later when 20th Century Fox announced, hey, we're going to re-reboot the series. Reportedly, early on, Adrian Brody was considered to play Mr. Fantastic, and there were talks of Keith or Sutherland playing The Thing, but it will be another three years after this initial announcement that production news surrounding the reimagination got interesting when it came to the future of the Fantastic Four as a feature film. In 2012, Marvel was dominating the superhero movie landscape, with two Iron Man movies, a somewhat forgettable 
Incredible Hulk reboot, a Thor movie, a Captain America movie, and the very first Avengers movie, all hitting the big screens within the span of about four years. And the team behind the Fantastic Four, well, they wanted to dip their beak into that never-ending pool of superhero box office ka-ching, ka-ching. The public couldn't get enough of superhero movies in their lives. And you know what else the public was going crazy for at this time? Found footage movies. And writer-director Josh Trank mashed up the popularity of superhero films with the found footage genre of storytelling and delivered the 2012 movie Chronicle. Chronicle is about a group of three high school friends that find the remains of a meteor that smashed into Earth, and then they end up getting superpowers, and one of them goes a little bonkers and becomes a bad guy, and his other two friends turn out to be the good guys, and things go sideways, and it's all very entertaining, and it was a big hit at the box office. Since Josh Trank scored big with this original idea, the folks over at 20th Century Fox decided to bring him in for this re-reboot of the Fantastic Four. Josh Trank was a 30-year-old filmmaker with one hit movie under his belt, so how could taking the reins of a 100 plus million dollar superhero franchise film as your next big project possibly go wrong? Josh Trank proposed to the studio executives a grounded, gritty version of the Fantastic Four. His vision would be to create a movie that was notably different from the two previous theatrically released family-friendly interpretations. And initially, the studio was on board with Trank's vision for the Fantastic Four. Heck, it worked for the Dark Knight, why not the Fantastic Four? Except for the fact that the Fantastic Four are really more of a dysfunctional family that deep down supports one another because they're all space mutated freaks who fight metal head dictators and planet eating super beings. It's just all kind of ridiculous if you stop and think about it. And grounding it in a darker, more reality-based world, along with a notably much younger cast, was certainly a unique approach to the characters. Josh Trank lobbied for Miles Teller to be cast as Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic. Miles Teller was riding high on critical praise from his performance as a percussion student in the abusive screaming drum teacher movie Whiplash. Fox thought about Miles Teller as Mr. Fantastic and they were all like, nah. Then Josh Trank was all like, yeah. And then the studio was all like, hmm, okay. Entertainment Weekly reported that once the movie was in production, director Josh Trank and the movie's male lead, Miles Teller, they had some friction on the set and they really got into it. It was reported that at one point, the two got all up on each other, daring one another to throw the first punch. Good God. Reed Richards' best friend, Ben Grimm, or The Thing. Well, he was played by Jamie Bell, who first skyrocketed stardom as the boy who would become a ballerina in Billy Elliot. For casting Sue Storm, the studio stepped in and insisted that Kevin Spacey's favorite actress to push off of a train station platform, Kate Mara, well, they said that she would be filling the Invisible Woman's invisible shoes. Sources claimed that Josh Trank treated Mara badly because, well, the studio insisted that she be cast in the movie. Michael B. Jordan was cast to play Johnny Storm. Jordan was one of the guys that got superpowers in Josh Trank's film Chronicle. Jordan played one of the two guys that didn't become the bad guy. And so director Trank and Jordan, well, they had history. And there was no real public reportings of Josh Trank being a jerk to Michael B. Jordan. That was left to the racist fanboys on the internet. Casting a black actor in a role that is traditionally played by a white guy is the kind of worthless thing on which the internet thrives. And the internet got so worked up about all of this that Captain America himself, Chris Evans, remember the former Johnny Storm? Well, he wrote an essay in Entertainment Weekly saying, hey, nerds, stop being racist assholes. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Director Josh Trank's troubles didn't end with onset drama. Reports came out that Josh Trank and the landlord of the New Orleans rental home where Trank was staying during filming, well, the two had some friction as 
allegedly. Trank's dogs did over $100,000 in damage to the home. The, la the landlord tried to evict Trank, who returned that gesture by reportedly doing even more damage to the home and its contents. The landlord called the sheriff. A civil suit was filed. Oh my god. And so, despite Josh Trank pulling a reverse Dale Carnegie, he somehow completed the film and it was an original, hard-hitting, gritty, alternate take on the superhero quartet. And 20th Century Fox executives came in and saw the final film. What they were looking for was a big-time summer superhero blockbuster that could go on to generate multiple sequels and spin-offs and toy lines, maybe a streaming series and a theme park ride, heck, maybe its own theme park and fast food tie-ins like the Five Guys Fantastic Four $3 twofer. But that's not what they got. The top brass at 20th Century Fox took a look at this movie and they said that the film only needed two things to be a hit. Extensive rewrites and considerable reshoots. Those led to body doubles and green screens and an infamous Sue Storm wig. And in the end, the movie turned into a jumbled mess of the singular vision of a young filmmaking know-it-all and old-school Hollywood know-nothings. But you know what? We'll get into all that when Bo gets here in a minute. With a hot mess of a movie on their hands, the film also found itself in the crosshairs of none other than Marvel, which actually began even before the film completed production. See, 20th Century Fox owns the film rights to the Fantastic Four, and it was reported that some behind-the-scenes shenanigans were going down to, let's not say sabotage the movie, but maybe more accurately make sure that the movie didn't get no unintended love from Marvel. The year before the film's release, Marvel Comics announced that they were going to be canceling the Fantastic Four comic book. Take that Fantastic Four movie reboot even more directly, Marvel actually killed off most of the members of the forthcoming Fantastic Four movie cast, including Miles Teller, Kate Mara, and Jamie Bell in a Fantastic Four comic. Marvel literally killed the actors from the movie in a comic book. And remember how 20th Century Fox kind of hated the end of the movie and changed the whole thing last minute? Well, Josh Trank kind of took that personally. And so he didn't do any favors in promoting the movie and pretty much refused to do any interviews with the press. Promotional niceties were left up to the stars of the film, in which Miles Teller, during an interview with Esquire magazine, said of the director, he's kind of a dick. And that was very popular on the internet. The night before the movie opened, Josh Trank tweeted out, quote, a year ago, I had a fantastic version of this, and it would have received great reviews. You'll probably never see it. That's really tough. End quote. That tweet was almost immediately deleted. I assume shortly after Josh Trank hung up his phone after speaking with lawyers from 20th Century Fox. It was expected that the movie would be tops at the box office, seeing as almost every other superhero movie to hit the big screen dominates its opening weekend. And guess what? It didn't do that at all. The movie opened on August 7th, 2015 and came in second at the box office right behind Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which was in its second week of theatrical release. Fantastic Four went on to bring in $56 million in North America and worldwide it pulled in $168 million against a budget of $155 million, not including all of the money spent on marketing and distribution. Studio executives blamed a wave of bad publicity and bad reviews and bad social media buzz on the movie being a bomb. It sounds to me like the movie just wasn't very good. The box office take dropped 69% after its opening weekend with a resounding thud, with an estimated overall loss of around $100 million. 
thus making this Fantastic Four movie the biggest Fantastic Four financial failure film to date. And that includes the Roger Corman one that wasn't even released in theaters. After the movie was released and eventually faded away, Josh Trank went on to say of his plans for a post-Fantastic Four career, quote, I want to do something original after this because I've been living under public scrutiny, as you've seen, for the last four years of my life. He went on to say, and it's not healthy for me right now in my life. I want to do something that's below the radar. And so he is. Josh Trank, at the time of this recording, is finishing up work on the film Fonzo, starring Tom Hardy as legendary gangster Al Capone, who is in his later years of his life imprisoned and suffering from dementia. The future of the Fantastic Four film franchise is unknown right now. Disney's purchase of 20th Century Fox began immediate rumors of re-re-reboots of both the Fantastic Four as well as the X-Men franchises as possible parts of the broader Marvel Cinematic Universe. The Fantastic Four was one of Stan Lee's very first superhero creations in the 1960s and was in part instrumental in breaking new ground for Marvel Comics and thus paving the way for the Marvel Cinematic Universe we know today. Rumor has it that a possible reboot would take place in the 1960s and that maybe Peyton Reed, the Ant-Man director who was attached to possibly direct the Fantastic Four movie over 15 years ago, well, he might take a turn in the director's chair of the franchise. That sounds like a good time. But let's not speculate on what might be. Let's pontificate on what actually is, specifically as it relates to the subject of this episode. What about the Fantastic Four movie? No, not that one. Is there anything truly fantastic about this film? Can a creative clash between a cinematic auteur and the Hollywood elites produce even some small piece of celluloid movie magic? And seriously, can Mr. Fantastic really stretch any body part into any shape? Well, enough with all this historical nonsense. Let's tap into this movie's nonsense. Ladies and gentlemen, Reed's and Sue's, and you know what? Johnny's and Ben's, you get in here too. I give you 2015's Fantastic Four. Welcome to Pick 6 Movies. I'm Chad Cooper and joined with my elastic, hard-headed, clearly transparent fireball of a co-host, Mr. Bo Ransdell. Bo, how are you doing? Fantastic. Pick 6 on is what I say, uh, which is kind of like flame on, which you hear one time sort of in this movie. This is episode four, the most fantastic of our episodes this season thus far. I don't know what to say about this movie. Well, if it's on our show, it's not very good. So we know that. Yeah, but Kong aside, <laughs> that that lovable ape gets a pass. But yeah, this movie is kind of wall-to-wall crap. You know what? Let's just dive into it. And I think that we'll... Can I, can I say up front, though? You probably made the best point we'll, either of us will make in the entire show in the introduction. When you talked about how when this movie was conceived as a gritty reboot, the idea of a comic series in which an invisible lady and a rock dude and a stretchy guy and a flame guy fight the silver surfer and a guy in a metal mask is going to be gritty is wrongheaded to begin with. And I figure if we use that as our baseline, mm-hmm. that that this should never have happened. No, it definitely shouldn't have. 
Well, because this movie is based on a Marvel comic book, we start off with the Marvel flipbook. So the movie begins, we hear this kid in voiceover, and he's in this middle school classroom, and he says that ever since he was three, he wanted to play in the NFL like his personal hero, Eli Manning, whose annual salary is between 10 and $20 million. This, Bo, right here, the first line of dialogue in this film represents everything wrong with this movie because the motivation for almost every single character in this film is money or fame this means that they everything they do is in pursuit of something that is just morally bankrupt is it morally bankrupt to want to be a celebrated sports hero to to feel the adulation pouring out of the stands in your direction and and cash an incredible paycheck and chad be on saturday night live where you get to throw a football at the back of some fucking kid's head oh yeah i forgot about that I, look i'm not saying yeah. that the pursuit of money or fame in and of itself leads to an existence that is void of any true meaning as a human being that would allow you to live a life of any real value you you know what wait that's exactly what i am saying i think that those are horrible vapid shallow pursuits and this movie is riddled with characters that if they have a motivation it is simply to be famous or rich which you cannot have in a superhero movie unless you're being ironic or artsy slash fartsy well later our motivation is just to kill so you know maybe we start off at least on kind of the right foot in that nobody dies if if it's just becoming famous it turns out that this kid is talking about him being you know this rich nfl player and then when this kid's done with his you know quote when i grow up delusion we cut back to this classroom where we see this bookish child scribbling away in this notebook that is filled with indecipherable numbers and letters this notebook looks like a child's version of the unabomber manifesto or maybe the elementary school equivalent of the murdering john doe from the movie seven it is the scribbles of a criminally insane prepubescent human male yeah the the only way that this isn't signs of psychopathy is if he is autistic or is predicting the future right if he's a medium and this is the way he is able to distract his conscious mind to be able to see into another dimension i'm totally cool with that but that's not what's happening here no 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 uh he instead is wild e coyote super genius and uh, Homer Simpson, who it turns out is the teacher of this classroom. Why is he the teacher in this classroom? Dan Castaneda has Simpson's money. Yeah. He doesn't need to be slumming it in this film. Why is he here? Who cast him? Why did he say yes? I think it was just kind of a goof. I think he was in the neighborhood or something. And they were like, hey, do you want to wear some kind of old man makeup for like 30 minutes? And he was like, oh, all right. Or I can't do Homer Simpson. I, I don't know why I tried. You know what? One thing about this film, it assumes that you know the whole Fantastic Four story. You know who they are, what they do. You know their pre-existing relationships to one another from the published comics and other movies. And on top of that, all the actors in this film are cast to be much younger versions of the characters that you already know from the aforementioned pre-existing media. It's a lot like a like a Muppet Babies version of the Fantastic Four <laughs> 
or like a like a TV show that would be on the WB or the CW or the UPN. I don't even know if those are networks anymore. I, I don't watch a lot of TV intended for people under the age of 30 or or over the age of 12. I think all of those merged into the CW at some point in the Demolition Man-esque Pepsi Wars. <laughs> this whole movie is about petty jealousy. And it's about who is romantically interested in who. And it's about how can I be famous? And I don't want other people to take credit for my creativity. Essentially, all of the characters are selfish and they're disrespectful. It's like this movie was written and directed by some immature man-child that isn't capable of controlling his emotion. Oh, wait. This all makes sense now. (laughs) Yeah. So Homer Simpson is like, you know, Reed Richards, what do you want to do for a living? Red Rum. Red Rum. (laughs) Yeah. And the kid is just like, well, I'll tell you, teacher, I would like to be the first person to teleport myself. And uh, like Homer Simpson immediately is just like, that sounds like a lot of bullshit. And the kid is like, well, you know, quantum information can already be teleported. Dude, that's the same logic that Willy Wonka used in proposing sending a chocolate bar via the same means that you send television signals. <laughs> there is a real Mike TV vibe to all of this, <laughs> which, again, much better movie if Mike TV is in the Reed Richards role. <laughs> But there's a moment that kind of pisses me off. Not kind of, it does piss me off. Because I don't, one thing I hate more than anything is a comic book movie that is ashamed of being a comic book movie. And there's a whiff of that in the Nolan films. Not so much, like Dark Knight is legitimately a fantastic movie. But there are a handful of of these comic book films where you can kind of tell that the director or the creative team behind it isn't totally on board with doing just kind of a goofy, silly, fun movie. Right. I call it the anti-Shazam where a movie just wants to go the other way and there's a gag here where Homer Simpson says oh teleportation aid did you give up on your flying car which is a reference to the fact that the Fantastic Four very famously had their like flying Fantastic Four car I didn't catch that i know but it it is the movie saying yeah get a look at these nerds who like all this fantastic four bullshit am i right and it's like you're right we like all the fantastic four bullshit like i'm not the biggest fan of the fantastic four but if you're gonna do a fantastic four movie do a fantastic four movie and don't try to gussy it up and make it a little too artsy fartsy when reed richards talks about how he's gonna transmogrify material from here to there and there to here he says that he's going going to use the transfer of quantum information to do all of this and i took about two and a half minutes to do some online research and i got a splitting headache really reading up on this so i just wanted to sum it up for the listener essentially this guy is basing all of his groundbreaking scientific achievements on the work of ray Zelinsky in the honey i shrunk slash blew up the kids movies yeah uh th- this is the uh what what how many of those did they make this is after uh honey i blew up the baby this is like honey I accidentally teleported to hell. Right. And then there was Honey, I I Blew Chunks. Um, Honey, I Blew Dad. Honey, I Blew Dad. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's some V.C. Andrews stuff (laughs) happening in in that movie. I don't know what happened. It was just, you know, there was lots of hugging and kissing and... There were keys in a bowl. The next thing I knew, (laughs) I had had something in my hand. Something was in my mouth. Nobody knew what was happening. I woke up the next day and I couldn't walk straight. But I had three proposals written to me and... 
that says something. Unbeknownst to us, in the back of the classroom, a young Ben Grimm is having his interest piqued by this conversation between Homer Simpson and young Reed Richards. He's so interested that he leans out from his desk at a jaunty 45 <laughs> degree angle to get a better look at what's happening near the chalkboard. Yeah, this is where I wish we had a slide whistle on this show. <laughs> And immediately Homer Simpson is as as the teacher when Reed Richards is like, hey, uh, I'm going to teleport. Immediately he's just like, hey, you're going to redo your paper because it has to be a real fucking thing, not your crazy make ups from your, you know, psycho notebook. To, in, in the defense of Homer Simpson, the teacher, he says, you got to go pick a real career. Hell, on the chalkboard, it says like career day or something like this. And I'm like, that's not a career. Reed Richards just got up and said, I'm going to make this invention. That's not a career. <laughs> right. Just, he did it wrong. It's, I'm going to make this thing, and then I'm going to be super famous and beloved, because I will have changed the world. Later that night, we cut to Grim Salvage Yard. <laughs> you big dummy! <laughs> and here we see that young Ben Grimm is getting beat up by his older brothers. And while his, the older brother's like slapping him around the head, he says, it's clobbering time. Which, to your point... Does the thing ever say that in this movie? I don't think he does. No, he does at the very end. As an homage to his abusive brother. His Aryan, by the way, abusive brother. Because <laughs> if you're trying to convince me that there is not a Confederate and or Nazi flag in that guy's bedroom, I'm not buying it, mister. He calls them curtains, Bo. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is a guy who's like, no, no, no. I'm not a Nazi. I just collect Nazi memorabilia. <laughs> I'm scouring eBay for old rifles and manuals from the... Luftwaffe and shit. It's an investment. You know, you buy low, you sell high. That's how it works. Hey, never forget, man. Never forget. <laughs> it's heritage, not hate. <laughs> oh, shit. Idiots. <laughs> So the matriarch of the Grimm family, she comes out and starts smacking the shit out of the older brother. It's a real cycle of violence at the old Grimm salvage yard. And then out in the junkyard, Ben Grimm, he goes out there and he comes across a young Reed Richards who has snuck in to steal a hypersonic Neuralizer Power Converter 2000 with bipolar reversal capabilities with a maximum capacity of 4,000 watts or some such bullshit. And Ben's like, yeah, yeah, we got one of those. So <laughs> our, our two young heroes, they head back to, to Reed's house with this giant battery looking thing. And then they go out back back of uh, Reed's parents' house and uh, they go into the, the garage that was abandoned by Doc Brown about 10 years earlier. And this garage is filled with Reed Richards bomb making supplies. I mean, his invention workshop. And let's be honest, Jack Shack. <laughs> this place is filled with wacky inventor type machinery wrapped in wires and lights and there's power cords and switches and schematics all over the place. You know, as a young 12 year old Reed Richards is trying to perfect his transporting device. Device. Yeah, it's utter nonsense, as much of this film is. And <laughs> and you have to ask yourself, like, how often is he going to this junkyard to pilfer shit? Why wouldn't Ben Grimm get one look at this place and be like, motherfucker, you owe us like six grand. That's the sign that we had to have replaced. Where did you get this half an engine from an old 88? Your dad? My mom has to take the bus now. <laughs> Yeah, you know, because you stole all this shit, we had to give up one of the kids. I don't even remember his name anymore. I got a brother that's just on the streets now because of you. It's at this time, Reed Richards, boy genius and all-around smartest kid on planet Earth. Well, he takes a flathead screwdriver and he tries to tighten up a screw that requires a Phillips head screwdriver. Yeah, it, super genius Reed Richards, not totally comfortable with the concept of a screwdriver. Young Ben Grimm, he reaches into his pocket 
and pulls out a Swiss Army knife because of course he has one. And there's a Phillips head screwdriver on it and he gives it over to Reed Richards. So it's like these two are quite the pair. He's the brain and he's the one who doesn't know how to use a Phillips head screwdriver. <laughs> I like here in this scene that <laughs> when Reed is talking about like, hey, your your junkyard is super cool. I really enjoy pilfering what I like from it, as is my privilege. <laughs> it has such low levels of security. You don't have any dogs. Your mother and all of your brothers are consistently passed out drunk. It's awesome. Really cheeseball lux. You can really just push your way in. Then Ben is like, uh, what about your mom and, and dad? Like, what's what did they think about your bomb making and manifesto writing? <laughs> and and he's, Reed says, my mom and stepdad, they just don't understand what I'm doing. And it's like, oh my God, this guy's going to kill all of us. Dude, stepdads and stepmoms get a pretty bad rap in American cinema. By and large, when you hear somebody's got a stepdad or stepmom, it's like, uh-oh. This is going to go bad. You know who was a good stepdad in a movie? Dennis Leary in The Sandlot. He was a real good stepdad. Well, counter uh, argument, Chad. There is an entire movie called The Stepfather, all about a psycho that marries a a nice lady Mm -hmm. and just goes on a killing spree. (laughs) They remade it, Chad. It was so good. They were like, you know what's fucked up? stepfather they made a movie like that already we're gonna remake it vincent d'onofrio he was a bad stepdad in radio flyer remember that he drank all that beer and he beat up that kid from jurassic park but then the jurassic park kid meets that talking buffalo and he flies off on a magic red wagon and then later he turns into tom hanks that's a weird movie it's been a long time since I thought about the movie Radio Flyer, and that is <laughs> that is one of the finest examples of Elijah Wood being way too mature as a child to the point that it, it feels creepy. Richard Donner directed that. Superman, Lethal Weapon. Boy. If you haven't seen Radio Flyer, go watch it. It's about Vincent D'Onofrio getting drunk and beating up the kid from Jurassic Park. What are you waiting for? Turn off this stupid podcast. That's out in the world. (laughs) That's a bar bet you'll lose every time. Hey, who directed Radio (laughs) Flyer? I don't know. Some dude off the street? No, the guy who directed Superman. Get the fuck out of here. Young Reed Richards, he fires up his transport machine and it takes a matchbox car. And there's this like big commotion and it beep bop zaps and then the matchbox car disappears into the air, which causes a blackout across the majority of New York. And at this point, the matchbox car is gone and in its place, is just sand and young ben Grimm says where's the car and young reed richards says i don't know and then young ben Grimm says reed you're insane and young reed richards replies thanks just because this comes up later i just want to point out that before he turns on the machine he, he whispers don't blow up don't blow up also the events that we're describing here is the exact same plot as the movie event horizon where there is a device invented that sends a spaceship to hell oh yeah and then brings it back i didn't think about that either but yeah you're right. liberate tutame ex inferis indeed i kind of expected the next scene in this movie to be homemade video cam footage of these two in trench coats out in the woods blasting shotguns at tree stumps and seeing who can fully skin a live squirrel before it dies in their own hands yeah if if like you did a field day with these children it would be all about inventing devices of death and mayhem we fade to black and now it's seven years into the future and these two are high school seniors and we're at a science fair 
And who was among the three judges, none other than Homer Simpson himself, the guy who was his fifth grade teacher? What kind of credentials does this guy have to be the judge of a science experiment? Well, I like the fact that, like, as Ben and Reed grew up, Homer Simpson was, like, doing his master's work and moving on to high school education. (laughs) And, like, by the time they get to college, he'll be their TA for a (laughs) physics class that he's sort of evolving with them. Reed Richards, who is now a teenager, says that he has made a cymatic matter shuttle, which he will use to transfer objects from one location to another and then bring them back. Where do they go? Who knows? How does it get back? Who cares? Yeah, the science on this is real shaky. I invented a a machine that does a thing. What does it do? I don't know. Not exactly. But I brought it to this science fair to be judged by, I don't, like, why on earth are you getting this judge at a fucking science fair a science fair is for baking soda volcanoes and styrofoam replicas of the solar system if you are inventing hey i've got a device that makes a thing disappear and then come back and i don't know where the fuck it goes the place for that is the hole in the wall cell that you live in once the nsa gets a whiff of it Reed asked Ben to hand him the matchbox car so that he can show how his uh, gizmotronic bebopatron works. And Ben's like, I I forgot the car. So Reed reaches over and borrows a tiny airplane from a nearby science fair exhibit and tells this small boy, looks like he's maybe 12 years old, that he'll give it right back. (laughs) Reed tells Ben to flip the switches on the machine and the machine lights up and then the plane disappears. And then Reed says, bring it back. And Ben smashes some other buttons, which causes the machine to make this loud noise and bip bop around. And then, uh, I don't know, some kind of sonic wave or something causes the basketball backboard to shatter and our toy airplane returns. And it's a little beat up, but it's also covered in sand. One thing that uh, struck me in this scene is as I was taking notes, it took me a second to remember what you call a basketball goal. I was like, is it a, is it a, a, a score? A basketball, like I couldn't put together that basketball and goal went together there. I knew it was a backboard, but it has literally been so long since I've watched any basketball. I didn't Mm -hmm. know what the thing you threw the ball into was called for a second. One time when I was a kid, I was watching the TV show Hardcastle and McCormick and that cool sports car that uh, Hardcastle or McCormick drove on the side of it. It said coyote. And I looked at the word coyote and I couldn't remember how to pronounce it. Yeah, except you were a child then and and there's an excuse for that. Mm -hmm. And as a grown man, this feels like information that should be readily available. I was just trying to make you feel better. Yeah, it didn't work. Uh, (laughs) Reed holds up the plane and he says, presumably this sand is from the Gansu Desert in China. Because that conclusion is based on complete and total bullshit. Why would he say this? Based on what? It's just a crazy make up like everything he does in this movie. It's just him talking completely out of his ass. Homer Simpson says, you're disqualified. This is a science fair, not a magic competition. And he tells Reed, you have to pay for the busted backboard, or as Bo calls it, a score square. (laughs) A a, a hoop home. It's a net fort. (laughs) Good luck getting that money from Reed Richards, dumbass. Ben kind of laughs at Reed after all this goes down. And I'm like, is Ben on Reed's side? Is he his partner? Why is he laughing at his friend? Like They try to establish this kind of pithy rapport between reed and ben like when when he can't uh, when they're trying to get something to teleport and it's like did you bring the car i didn't bring the car well you're supposed to bring the car i forgot the car well we got to get something like there's that
that. And then after the uh, the basketball uh, TP explodes, then uh, Reed is like, I told you, don't hit it that hard. You know, you you need you don't need to hit the button that hard. And they, and they kind of do a little bit of repartee back and forth. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you can keep all of this. This is not working at all. I don't like either of these people. And I think they're dangerous. The 12-year-old boy from whom Reed borrowed the toy airplane, he comes over and says, and I quote, you're a dick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, one of the few truths of this movie. You're insane and you're a dick. Let's get into some more improbable elements of this movie's narrative. After the explosion, we get to meet Dr. Franklin Storm and his daughter, Sue Storm. Franklin Storm is played by Reggie Cathy, who is a black actor. You may remember him from HBO's The Wire, where he played the political operative that helps the mayor get uh, elected during the campaign. He was also on House of Cards, where he played freddie hayes the guy that owned freddie's barbecue and that role landed him an emmy but in this less quality filled film he is the patriarch of the storm family yes and sue storm notably uh one of the mara sisters this time it's kate and not rooney they have the tough uh situation of being models actresses and also heirs to a great fortune (sighs) we all have our cross to bear bo yeah, I, look, I am a superficial person at heart. You don't have to scratch too much beneath the surface because there ain't nothing there. And I have a very obvious and simmering hatred of people who just had everything handed to them in life. And Kate Mara is just not a good enough actress for to win me over in this movie. The whole time I'm just like... God, you suck. It should also be noted that she is a white actress with blonde hair. And she is the daughter of Dr. Franklin Storm, who is in this film an older black man. So unless her mother is an albino, she is adopted or daughter in name only. Turns out she's adopted, but we'll get to that later. Does he say in this scene that she's adopted? I I don't think that comes up until later. It shouldn't really matter, but it would be nice if they just pay quick lip service to it. They don't have to go overboard can just be like and this is my daughter sue and they make a joke about oh yes i'm sure you see the family resemblance actually sue is my adopted daughter let's move on with the film but they don't because the movie just sort of has that what what are you looking at like i'm not looking at anything it's just you're really black and you are really really white you look translucent There's nothing about your physical features and or behavior to suggest that this would be your father, and I find it a little confusing. Dr. Franklin Storm and Sue Storm, they're just trolling around the science fair like one would a flea market, hoping to find a hidden gem of a genius in support of their matter transmogrification of Tron 2000 that they're working on. And just to provide a little context, there are two other science fair entries around Reed Richards. One of them is called The Science of Puppy Love, and the other one is called The Science of Lift. And there's also something behind him called bridge construction well then dr franklin starts asking reed richards about his now disqualified science fair project and reed spouts off a bunch of science mumbo jumbo while sue takes pictures with her phone and ben Grimm he looks on with a face that says that he's about to just whip her ass for stealing you know intellectual property and and personal secrets of science magic yeah it is kind of nice to see ben Grimm just as the muscle of the two of like hey so you want me to hit a boss don't get too used to him being around yeah he disappears appears for a big chunk of this movie and and the other problem i would argue is that there is no villain for over two-thirds of the film i would probably go four-fifths but we'll we'll have to do the math on that later sure so but, but kate mara is like 
hey, uh, you you cracked interdimensional time travel. And Rita's like, the fuck are you talking about? I just, I send this to China. And she's like, no, 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 dummy. This dirt, we've got some of it too. Yeah, I, I carry a tube around in my pocket everywhere I go in case we run into somebody who has performed the same top secret experiments that we're doing. And I need to prove to them that we have sand and dirt like the sand and dirt they found. I mean, you found. I mean, we found. Yeah, the the fact that she has the tube of dirt is stupid to begin with. Also, at what point did they become aware of like, hey, there's this dude who's got this rock and science experiment. You need to get down there. I just think they go to science fairs on the weekend. The way some couples go antiquing. You think it's like, Sue, get, get your Sunday best on. <laughs> We're going to an elementary, middle, and high school science fair all in the same day. I call it the hat trick. I'll be right there, father. I'll bring my sand. <laughs> Dr. Franklin Storm says, Mr. Reed, we're from the Baxter Foundation. We'd like to give you a full scholarship. To where? For what? Is that a college? Is it a research institute? Is it a business? Are we supposed to know what this is as the audience? I I mean, th these are all fine questions. If you know the comics, you know like, oh, well, the Baxter building is the Fantastic Four building. But that's the only reason this would be in any way meaningful. Reed doesn't even know what they're talking about. He asks them, so where did you guys say you were from again? And then cut to New York, I guess. And we see Ben Graham and Reed Richards, you know, wandering through the streets headed towards the Baxter building, which I'm like, what's a Baxter building? Who were the Baxters? Is Baxter a person? Right. Is it a family? Did you not do the required reading before you showed up? Well, that's your fault. When they show up at this giant building, they're escorted inside where it's apparently a school slash laboratory because Ben remarks like, like, you know, hey, at least they're wearing lab coats in here. Then there's a touching question mark scene where Reed and Ben are in Reed's new dorm room, I guess. Right. And he gives Reed his old Swiss Army knife. Hey, remember, sometimes you need a flathead and sometimes you need a Phillips head. Remember, flat is for flat. Phillips is for plus. P for plus. P for Phillips. I know the P is silent, and I know that Philip sounds like it starts with an F, and flat begins with F. Reed, you know what? Just go be smart, Reed. <laughs> right. How am I the stupid one in this movie? Oh, my God. I mean, that's a fine question, but, but Reed is like, hey, so, you know, I'll see you on the weekends, and we'll talk all the time. And uh, Ben is like, we're never going to see each other again, man. Like, I know what's going on here, and you are now with your nerd people, and I'm going back to my junkyard and racist family. To slowly be indoctrinated. So Ben Grimm says goodbye to his buddy and we don't see him literally for another hour. 25% of the Fantastic Four is pretty much absent from, we'll go with your estimation, two thirds of the movie. Look, that is a lot of math, but if you really do the calculations, it pretty much just equals one crummy movie. <laughs> so Reed, it goes about his new life as a, a scientician. Mm -hmm. There's this scene where he goes to the library mm -hmm. and is collecting books and he sits down across from Sue Storm, who is listening to music and reading a book over her own. And they get... <laughs> God damn it, Chad. They get in this discussion where he he's talking about Captain Nemo. Yeah, he holds up the book, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. <laughs> right. 
As if, like, if Reed Richards, super genius, is so out of touch to think that every human being that has ever attended a grammar school doesn't know what the fuck 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is. And he seems genuinely surprised when she's like, yeah, I know the book, I've read it. What do you think the other seven books in his arm were? Like, (laughs) Amelia Bedelia? You know, like, Encyclopedia Brown? (laughs) Super Fudge? Tales of a great a fourth grade nothing. Uh, I am the cheese when he's feeling a little heavy. Diary of a wimpy kid. Yeah, I mean it's all so dumb. Like it's one of those things when you see it in the movie when he looks so stunned that you, he's like, "Oh, you know this book." It's like, yeah. Hey, did you know they made a movie too? Read, huh? Yeah, she gives him a real. You can fuck off. But before you leave, I need to tell you that I listen to music and I'm good at identifying patterns and data and pictures and human behavior because this will be important later. And also your love of a novel featuring the character named Captain Nemo should also be mentioned because we're going to deal with that a little bit later as well. Yeah, when that comes up and you realize that the whole reason you have this stupid 20,000 leagues under the sea conversation is to pay it off later for this other stupid reason, which again, I mean, I I know this is jumping ahead, but like the whole reason is because later she's hunting for him and sees an email or an exchange server or something like that named Captain Nemo. And she's like, well, that's him because he and I were the only people who ever read (laughs) 20,000 leagues under the sea. What the fuck? fuck it's also here that sue storm says that she can tell that all reed richards wants is to be famous and we the audience have seen nothing that would lead us to believe this it turns out it's true but the movie doesn't do a good job of setting this up because it isn't a very good movie he's like oh am i so predictable and she says well everyone is then he says well i don't really want to be famous i just want to make a difference and you're just like just all of this stop it it <laughs> And like, if this is supposed to be like, this is the basis of their relationship later. I mean, is there any chemistry between the two of them at all in this movie? They're same way where there is when you have water and you, you know, sprinkle a little salt in it. <laughs> right. It's it, the same chemistry that one finds in the cooling effects of, say, an anti-inflammatory <laughs> on a giant hemorrhoid we then cut to dr franklin storm and he's in front of the board of directors of the baxter company who are these people working for is this a business who knows not us the audience and we get to meet the head of this board who is played by tim blake nelson who was the title character uh, Buster Scruggs in the Coen Brothers Old West anthology, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And he was also one of the three members of the Escape Chain Gang in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Specifically the one who isn't John Turturro or George Clooney. He played the villain or potential villain in a Hulk sequel that never happened. What? He was Sam Stern in The Incredible Hulk, and he was the dude what got some, like, gamma shit dripped on him and his head swelled up to uh, suggest that he was going to be a villain in a later Hulk film that never happened because nobody saw that, you know, reboot with Edward Norton. But yeah, mm-hmm. he, he's been in a couple of superhero movies, and he's kind of the kiss of death to all of them. Well, in this movie, he's the head of the board, and Dr. Buster Scruggs, he says to him, he's like, now listen here, Dr. Storm, the board needs real world applications, not a bunch of kids running around in diapers in this building, making bacon show volcanoes and sticking wires into taters. What about that other fella, Victor Von Doom? He's on your list of science of people. What in tarnation you got him on here? I don't like him. 
He's giving me the stink eye. Yeah, he, he's like, there's an entire universe just out of reach, and I can't have you fucking this all up by bringing in that Victor Von Doom. So it turns out that Dr. Franklin Storm uh, has this project where they're going to send stuff from here to there and there to here. They can send stuff anywhere. And it turns out that the whole thing was kind of set up by heartthrob, handsome, and brooding man about town, Victor Von Doom. And so Dr. Franklin Storm, he says, we need to go find this genius to help us get this project back on track. So Dr. Franklin rides out to visit Victor Von Doom at his work shed near the train tracks where Victor Von Doom is holed up. And this place is pretty much the same shed that Barry Allen lived in when Batman went to go find him in justice league season five episode four pick six movies <laughs> yeah it's it, it's a real like hacker shed you can also find a similar location in, that gene hackman owns in enemy of the state <laughs> and it's him just hacking stuff he's just a computer hacker nerd guy if you say so this is a dude who in modern parlance would be all about QAnon. yes maybe he should go hook up with ben Grimm's older brothers they would think he was q you know (laughs) but because uh, dr storm is like hey we need some help with our teleporting stuff to hell project he's like oh yeah but who gets their hands on it's not you i don't trust uh dr storm it's the government you know how deep this goes it goes all the way to the top And he's just a paranoid, crazy person. And immediately it's obvious, like, you do not need this guy working on your top secret government project because what he really wants to do deep down is sabotage it. Dr. Franklin Storm says, hey, we found this guy um, who had the same idea you had, but he made his work. Unlike you, who, you know, didn't. But anyway, I'm leaving. But if you want to come help out, Sue, my beautiful beautiful daughter will also be working on the project so victor's like all right i'll help out (laughs) right because he's got a thing for sue i've had a i've had a boner for your daughter for some time so thanks for dangling that little honey pot in front of me that'll get me to work on your super secret hell project we cut to reed richards walking into this airplane sized hangar of a science laboratory and it's filled with computer equipment and there are just nerds everywhere they're all running around and i don't know if they're all working on different projects or if they're all working on the same project that reed's working on i guess it doesn't matter yeah let's go with that none of this matters when he's looking at plans for the machine that you know they're they're building now the upgrade of, of the thing he was building for the science fair there's a moment that it again is supposed to be kind of flirty and charming and it just falls so flat where sue storm is like yeah you know uh that thing that you built that knocked out a bunch of power it's good that it did because if you hadn't done that it would have opened up a black hole that would have sucked the entire earth into it R- really that that's what we're to believe here well, that sets up the end of this movie, Chad. If, you, if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it, that that is supposed to be the thing that explains the stupid magic at the end of this movie. As long as the movie knows it's full of shit, I'll play along. Reed, again, Miles Teller is just so the wrong guy for this part. Uh, he's a little bit too young, and he's a little bit too awkward, where I feel like Reed Richards needs to be sort of a confident guy. Like, he's, he's the smartest person in the room. And what we get here... Here is Reed saying, which is kind of a funny line that would have worked, I think, in a different scene where he says, oh, well, I'm glad that didn't happen. Then he asks, hey, who's that guy who's brooding up there in the office? And she says, well, that's Doom, the guy who started this project. Yes, yes, I know his name sounds like a villain, but don't let that fool you. That's not going to matter for a long, long time. (laughs) Then she says, like, my job is to make all of the body armor for the trip 
to this hell dimension. Then we go to what is obviously a reshoot scene, and which you can tell because Kate Mara is wearing a god-awful wig. It is stunning how clear it is from scene to scene. Like, oh, that's original shooting? That is not original shooting. It's about, I don't know, I would say about a third of this movie feels like it, it was reshoots based on the fact that she has this wig that is way blonder than her hair in other scenes. I totally spaced out for about 14 seconds there because when you were talking about the casting of this movie, I just started thinking, who would I want to see cast as Reed Richards? And the perfect person to play this part, he's already kind of played it uh, to some degree on the Venture Brothers when he was Mr. Impossible. If you told me that they were rebooting the Fantastic Four and Stephen Colbert was going to play Mr. Fantastic, Reed Richards, Mm -hmm. I would go buy a tent, take it down to my nearest movie theater, set it up, and be the first one in line to buy the ticket. I'll tell you, George Clooney from the year 2000 would be an amazing Reed Richards. He's a little too old now, but it's that kind of, like, you need someone who's kind of charming and can pull off being smart and you give him the gray at the at the temples and you got yourself a real movie. <laughs> <laughs> Not like this. Yeah. Everyone in this is cast too young. They, every, they get everything wrong about this movie. So yeah. let's get back to everything to being wrong. Reed comes in with Sue Storm and Victor Von Doom is there and Dr. Franklin's there and they're looking at uh, some of Reed's I don't know, like psychological crazy sketches of his, you know, project plans. And things get awkward between Reed and Victor Von Doom and Sue. All their dialogue is like, hey, hey, so, sup? Yeah. Mm hmm. All right. Whatever. Later. Here's Sue shows Reed video footage from a drone that they sent to the other dimension. Uh, see, they put a camera on it and this drone's camera is able to broadcast video back to Earth from this other dimension. Uh-huh. But look, I'm not smart. That's pretty obvious. <laughs> but even I know that this is not how things work, not even in the real world. In a fictitious movie world like this one it is complete and total nonsense if you think that from our previous episode poltergeist season eight episode three um i remember <laughs> it because it was the last one they send a drone with a camera into the ghost world and and that is like well that seems like bullshit but i'll go with you because you're at least looking at the same house kind of this is at best chat at best a planet in a different galaxy <laughs> Otherwise, you're talking about a different dimension entirely where the laws of physics may not even be the same. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we got a good signal. What we did is we crimped a little tinfoil on the drone. <laughs> Turns out that boosted it just enough for us to get a look at hell. Victor Von Doom, he starts spouting off about how this new world is a potential source of new energy that'll most likely be ruined by all of the capitalist pigs. Because the people here ruining Earth are the guns are going to ruin this into the ground. And then Sue says under her breath, well, looks like we got a real Dr. Doom over here. God damn it, Chad. That's his name in this movie. It's not like it was a nickname where she's like, listen, Dr. Doom. Yes, listen to Dr. Doom. His name is Victor Von Doom. You're not giving him a clever nickname. He's probably a doctor. Right. You're just like, God damn it. Why isn't anything in this movie done in a way that makes a little bit of sense? It's so frustrating. It would be like if, if 
she said sarcastically, get a load to my dad over here. <laughs> Dr. Franklin Storm says, y'all need to get this machine working. And Victor Von Doom says, yeah, if this thing works, they better send us to the other world. And then Reed's like, hell yeah, I want all that fame too and fortune and fly honeys that this intergalactic port traveler thing's going to get me. I want them sexy hoes come over here and be drawn to me like iron fillings to a magnet. What, what? If only he said that. <laughs> if that was his character in this movie, I would like it so much more. Yeah, Dr. Storm gives him this big speech that I don't remember about how, like, hey, everybody needs to work together and uh, we're going to design it and get it working and send inorganic matter and then organic matter and then and then off they go it, it, it is the least rousing speech in the history of cinema whatever i was supposed to feel i i presume somewhat inspired and excited what i felt was tired and sad <laughs> quick time check on our movie we're about 22 minutes into the film and it's only 100 minutes long so we're over 20 percent of the way into the movie and we have yet to meet the fourth member of the fantastic four and also, uh, when we do meet him, it turns out that he is just a street racer. And, and he, you know, it's Michael B. Jordan who played Creed, uh, Killmonger in that Black Panther film. Yes. Michael B. Jordan's a great actor. He, this movie is filled with very good actors and actresses. It's just that the movie is garbage and the script is garbage. I don't know that I would extend that to Kate Mara. I mean, I'm sure I've got my own socioeconomic quibbles with her, but I also think she's real one note in this movie movie from top to bottom it's just all she always looks vaguely surprised and confused by everything that's happening in the film kevin spacey went down on her in house of cards oh okay i get that just think about that you know what no don't think about that do you think to get excited for the scene he was thinking what if she were an underage waiter <laughs> There's some stuff I don't like to think about, and I think about some weird stuff. Sometimes I think about what my house weighs, <laughs> with and without furniture. Uh, so we, so Creed, uh, our, our Johnny Storm, is in this street race. Let's make a long story short. He, he crashes his car, and his dad, Dr. Franklin Storm, shows up at the hospital and yells at his kid. And a character who has no scientific background has a broken arm. And I'm like, why is any of this in the movie? Why is his love of speed and danger introduced when it isn't really a thing that has any bearing later on as it relates to the plot let alone his character why is his arm broken that just goes away as quickly as it showed up I, apparently it was just a sprain or something huh. uh right no it's so dumb the the one thing that happens here is after he goes to the hospital his dad comes to pick him up and he says uh hey you're not getting your car back uh you're gonna have to work it all in the in the baxter labs or whatever you remember those things like what the fuck is like baxter lab <laughs> and is that's where I work. Don't worry about it. His one stipulation to all of this is I don't want to wear a lab coat. That's the beginning and end of his negotiation here. It's not, well, how long do I have to work there to get, to get the car back? Is the car totaled? Can I get a new car if I work there long enough? None of that is discussed. It's just like, hey, I'm not going to be a real nerd like the rest of the people who work in this top secret government lab that you're making me work like it's a summer job. They also briefly introduced that Dr. Franklin and Johnny Storm have a rocky relationship and there's some kind of friction between Johnny Storm and Sue but that comes to nothing in this film and then they just casually throw out hey Johnny you've got a high IQ and you can build anything yeah <laughs> then Dr. Doom we got a real Dr. Doom over here and he says hey he doesn't take orders well though 
And there's a, a good delivery from Michael B. Jordan. He says, yeah, especially from people I don't <laughs> who say I don't take orders well, Th- which is probably my favorite thing that happens in this entire movie. And then Reed is like, hey, uh, Johnny Storm, I need some help, and I'm not an asshole like that guy, who, by the way, his last name is Doom. Does anyone else feel that that's ominous in some way? No? Okay. <laughs> yeah, come on over. I need some help building this super secret machine. Child of the doctor who runs this. We get a montage of Reed and Sue and johnny working with victor to make this experiment a reality and if you've never heard of the fantastic four in your life you would think that these four people are the fantastic four everything about this film is out of order yeah like dr doom is a much more important character throughout the film than ben Grimm almost ever is and and he's gone like like you said he's just not in this movie whatsoever there is one moment in this at the end of this montage Mm -hmm where uh, Reed takes a picture of himself in front of the machine and sends it to to Ben Grimm just to remind the audience that this is a character in the movie. Yeah, it's like, thanks for showing up again. See you in about a half hour. Bye! Right, and then at the halfway point of this movie, maybe, there's some more bad flirting with, with Reed and Sue. And finally, he's like, so you're adopted? Or your mom was albino? <laughs> right, and he says, well, what happened? She was like, well, I was born in Kosovo. And then does an, an accent and kind of winks at him. And it's like, okay, well, were you kidding? Where were you really born? Why do, Why doesn't anybody just say something in this movie? And also, why is Susorb so sarcastic about everything? Assuming that she is from Kosovo, and based on the age of the characters and the reference we got earlier to Eli Manning, the approximate time of you know, which this movie takes place, it it led me to believe that she was born during the war in Kosovo, which means she might have been one of those children born of Albanian descent that Bill Clinton went to see during the last years of his presidency. And I don't know if you know that much about Kosovo or the history of Albania, for that matter. Um, But whenever I learn about a country, I'll usually sing a song about that country to help me remember, you know, facts and information about the country. Something like, like, Albania... Albania, you border on the Adriatic. Your land is mostly mountainous, and your chief export is chrome. You know, when I learned uh, some lessons about geography, the one that stuck with me was uh, Iranian's pain comes mainly from Khomeini. That that little song was the song that Coach taught Sam Malone on the episode of Cheers from over 20 years ago. Oh, I mixed that up with the SNL sketch where Brad Hall is teaching Tim Kazarinsky about Iran. It's hard to believe I would have confused those, Chad. <laughs> References from roughly the same time 30 years ago. <laughs> again this show is really just about us let's get back to our crappy movie yeah so reed and sue are flirting about uh albania and doom is watching them like all creepy like and he does this reed get over here (laughs) like and he and (laughs) reed richards goes up to him he's like hey man what's up he's like I see you uh, trying to mack on uh, on on Sue Storm over there, and he's like, "Oh yeah, you know, we're just kind of chit chatting and whatnot. I'm just being a little little cool about it." Yeah, but you know what? You don't have to worry about me tapping that sweet ass. You know what? Because we got the machine working, baby. Let's toss a monkey in that motherfucker and see if it works. Doom is like, hey man, that's fucking unprofessional. How about you keep your dick in your pants while you're at work? And he's like, hey, we're done. We fucking fixed this motherfucker. Check it out. I learned a difference between Flathead and Phillips. Come on. We're about to throw a monkey into 
to a sick dimension. The next day in the science lab, I'm guessing we're still at Baxter HQ. Dr. Buster Scrugg, he shows up and he's like, what in the wild, wild world of sports is going on in here? We get to see one really fake looking monkey strapped into this go bye-bye Tron. And they blast <laughs> this monkey into this other dimension. And then their plan is to bring the monkey back. And the whole time you're kind of expecting the monkey to be all fucked up or maybe it's going to have its own superpowers. Hell, it may come back dressed up like Abraham Lincoln. Yo, monkey, why you got a stovepipe hat on? And what are you doing with those tickets to the monkey version of our American cousin? Didn't you read your fucking history books? Oh, my God. Listen, bro, monkey John Wilkes Booth is not going to take this kindly. <laughs> he can climb right up those curtains. He's He's got prehensile feet. <laughs> you better watch out, my monkey Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Also, I hear your monkey wife is a little crazy. Why don't you tell me about that a little bit? <laughs> but no, our monkey arrives on this other planet and transmits back a video via a monkey cam. Remember that on David Letterman's show, The Monkey Cam? Yeah, yeah I do remember that. <laughs> I, I called this Monkey One. This whole project is just like, hey, we're going to fire a monkey at hell and see what happens. But the monkey comes back and the monkey's just fine. When he comes back, like Dr. Storm, because he's given to speeches, is like, this may give us answers to evolution. Answers to questions we don't even know how to ask yet like how much longer is this movie zing and <laughs> how about the question of do monkeys furiously masturbate and throw their feces on other planets like they do here on earth and the answer to that is a resounding yes <laughs> you don't have to build one of these things to answer that question there is some science that maybe you haven't run the test on but you know the results like if the if the question is will a monkey masturbate and throw its poo at x the answer is almost always yes <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Buster Scruggs comes down to talk to Johnny and Reed and Sue and Victor Von Doom. And he says, yeah, you scallywags done pulled a trick shot that would make Annie Oakley piss her underpinnings. I swear you're the hootinest, tootinest, shootinest eggheads in the wild, wild west. We need to team up with the big brains at NASA so that they can take somebody else, put them into that machine, shoot them wherever the hell it goes, and let them take credit for all your work. Yeehaw! Doom is real pissed off about the fact that Buster Scruggs is like, y'all boys ain't going nowhere! <laughs> and flips him off, which I think is really funny. Like, I, anytime somebody flips the bird in a movie, I'm kind of happy. My favorite middle finger in cinema ever was the gorilla giving the middle finger in The Incredible Shrinking Woman. That's pretty good. Mine is a movie I referenced already tonight, it's uh, Gregory Hines double-fisting the bird to a child in Running Scare. And doing the, yeah! <laughs> That's good because it's a kid. I'll tell you another really good one from a shit film is in City Slickers 2 when Billy Crystal gives John Lovitz the finger. Yeah. Where he points at him with the middle finger and then sticks it up. Yeah, I, an aggressive middle finger is one of my favorite <laughs> things in, in movies. Yeah. <laughs> And life, quite frankly. Like, even when I'm the, the recipient, if somebody gives me a good middle finger, just like, motherfucker, you know, right in the face, I really like it. Doom and the Gang, uh, which would have been a great funk band, are drinking. And again, Ben Grimm, nowhere near this scene uh, until later. Yeah, well, Von Doom, he whips out a flask and says, hey, let's get drunk. Again, I just want to say to everyone listening, if you own and use a flask in your day-to-day -day life, you are an alcoholic. If you feel the need to have a portable personal reserve of booze on you at all times, 
you need to seek professional help. Surprise, surprise, Doom, the guy who lives alone in a shack, obsessed <laughs> with conspiracy <laughs> theories, might have a little bit of a substance abuse problem. <laughs> The fact that he doesn't have needle tracks is, is the real stunner. <laughs> I, I, I do it between my toes. Von Doom and Richards and Johnny Storm, they're all getting drunk, which leads them to hatch a plan that these three ding-dongs are going to go use this machine to zip-zap-zoop over to the other dimension so that they can get all of the fame and glory. Yeah, I mean, th- th- again, this is just bad motivation of, hey, fuck letting professionals do this in a monitored and controlled setting. Remember, Sue, uh, when Sue was telling me all about how I could suck the whole world into a black hole? I don't know. Let's roll the dice and see if that don't happen. And in a twist that is impossible to explain in a movie that is in- impossible to explain, Reed Richards calls up his lifelong childhood friend, Ben Grimm, at like 2 a.m. in the morning and he's like, Ben, it's me, your lifelong pal, Reed Richards. I'm not sure if you remember or not, but we were in a movie together that you left about an hour ago. Anyway, you're my best friend, I guess. And so you should get on the East train and come down to the Baxter building and we're going to travel to another dimension in a bigger version of that machine we built when we were kids. Or as it's measured by the calendar, roughly one week or two years ago. This movie has no concept of time. But yeah, Ben is like, well, I was going to run down to the Target and grab a bunch of tiki torches for a protest my family's taken me to but uh instead i guess i can just go to a hell dimension with you ben comes down and these four people that does not include sue storm one of the four people that makes up the fantastic four well these other four people they get into the machine they're going to travel across dimensions again with no technical support these four idiots are not the fantastic four it's three of them how do you screw this up so badly yeah given the amount of drinking it's amazing that like jack elam wasn't in a lab coat in one of the (laughs) one of the pods with a hypodermic he squirted into his mouth occasionally (laughs) what i'm saying is this this is the cannonball run of science experiments of just like i don't know these bleeds yeah let's go to hell so they get in this transmo gogographer machine and apparently this thing works like an elevator you just strap yourself in push a button and boop you're gone yeah and then you push that same button and boop you're back there is no external support needed to travel from one dimension to another it's disappointing because i would have loved to have heard you know miles teller say like they should have sent a poet So off pops our machine and our four male leads are off to another dimension. And back on Earth, Sue is working late into the night. It's like 3 a.m. by my estimation. And she gets an alert that the Globe Trotteratron P9000 is being used by her former lover, possible new boyfriend, brother through adoption, and some random stranger she doesn't know at all. Now she has to go figure out what these drunk knuckleheads have done. <laughs> To undo all of their hard work. It's like a hot tub time machine. Yeah. Oh, it's, it, like she is the only one who represents anyone acting normally or behaving rationally in this scene, which really is a conflict with how much I want to dislike her in this movie. One of my least favorite things is when a movie dates itself so obviously. And this happens because once they go to the hell dimension, that like these capsule doors open up and they're on this primordial planet. Doom sees some green glowy shit in the distance 
And then you see Michael B. Jordan as Johnny Storm snap a picture with his phone and says, this is going on Instagram. Well, of course it is, Bo. I hate all of this. I like when Ben Grimm, who let's look, he was asleep 90 minutes ago in his bed and he steps out on this hell dimension and he has this attitude of chomping gum. He's like, yeah, I've seen better. Are you not impressed? Right. Yeah, like just a bunch of rocks and some green glowing shit that could be an eternal source of energy. Whatever. Reed Richards plants a big old American flag on the ground, which splits the surface of the the rocks beneath him with a giant uh, crack. And then Victor Von Doom says, hey, let's go way over there where it's not safe. And then Ben Grimm, with the least amount of experience and let's be honest, formal education, he turns out he's the one with the most sense and and the most uh, amount of reason within his head. He's like, you know what? Look, let's do it quick and then let's get the fuck out of here. Okay. Yeah, we we need to beat feet because wherever we have have come to, your next plan is to descend a sheer cliff to get to the source of an unknown substance. And Johnny Storm, our adrenaline-seeking speed freak junkie, he agrees to just stick around while the other three guys go off to explore. Which, I was like, you know, maybe he just knew that in science fiction movies, the black guy is the one who always gets killed first, so staying back may be the safest move for him right now. Yeah, he's like, I'm not red-shirting my shit in this movie (laughs) i'm staying right next to the thing that takes us back home and doom leads him down to what he thinks is you know here's the source of all this green shit he says look the energy is alive and a geyser of this stuff goes off and the ground starts shaking and splitting and the house began to pitch and twitch and hitch and this arc of green shit grabs victor who is still drunk presumably presumably so who falls down reed says well we can't leave him and they're like making their way back up this cliff and and ben again the sensible one is like man we can't wait around for him this whole world seems to be falling apart because of question mark so (laughs) how about we get back to home base then we'll figure this shit out and send somebody back for victor yeah and this is all happening while just rocks are crumbling the ground is opening up it's just chaos so they get back leaving doom behind they get back to the the bye-byatron and strap in but it's a real rush job and sue is in our world presumably and is trying to recall the bye-byatron in the meantime ben is getting pelted with rocks then all of a sudden uh michael b jordan's pod catches fire johnny storm's pod catches fire reed richard's pod gets filled up with rubber bands (laughs) right yeah nothing really happens to him and you're like okay i guess why do we need these elements to explain their transformations the answer is we don't yes the the original origin story is that you know they get hit by all these gamma rays or whatever out in space and it just does weird shit to them yeah and and that's all you need like sue calls them back but when the thing gets back into our world it kind of explodes as it does so this wave of energy comes out from it and we see sue storm get knocked back and goes partially invisible a little bit yeah she gets a little superpower gamma shrapnel tossed her away and then the lights go out all over town that's the night the lights went out at the baxter building reed wakes up in the science lab and this place is in ruins and 
Reed drags himself across the floor by his hands and his arms to help his friend Ben, who is just calling out, you know, in sheer pain from under this pile of rubble. And as Reed drags himself across the floor, he sees the burning corpse of Johnny Storm in the background. That's gritty. <laughs> yeah. Slowly, Reed pulls himself across the floor, and when he reaches the pile of rocks where the voice of Ben is originating, Reed looks back and sees that his legs have stretched to be very, very long, and then Reed faints. What a baby. He swoons. Like, Reed Richards is just like, oh my, I do declare, look at my legs. And then just passes the fuck out. And then we cut to Area 57. Six times more secret than Area 51. Basically, they have taken Reed Richards from his stretchy, passed out state and taken him to this super secret Area 57. And he is on this gurney with his limbs all stretched out and whatnot. And is just all drugged up. And they're like, can you hear us? Uh, read and he's just like what wow everybody looks like potatoes what is happening and then they're interrogating dr storm as well and they're like what happened he's like i don't know but i need to see my kids they take him to sue first and they tell him look she's shifting in and out of the visible spectrum and he's like well that's pretty fucked up why do her clothes fade in and out too that seems odd shouldn't she be naked fading in and out not that i want to see my daughter naked but i mean you know there's a lot of red-blooded scientists around here i dangled her in front of von doom earlier i'm not past getting these guys a cheap thrill when i can she's my adopted daughter guys not my real daughter it's it's cool if i've seen her in the shower all right everybody quit looking at me like that they're like all right you want to see johnny storm this is some fucked up shit man are you sure you're ready for this and he's like yes i want to see my son and they take him to johnny storm who is just constantly on fire if i woke up and i'm engulfed in flames i would immediately think i'm in hell it would depend if it hurt or not because presumably (laughs) this does not but then again it could just be that i woke up in hell and they were like look we've been looking at your work and we're kind of fans (laughs) how do you feel about seducing souls to our side in which case i throw up the devil horns throw on some black sabbath and i'm down for the ride (laughs) yes where do i sign well prick your finger sign here 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 initial here yeah it's that muppet show episode where gonzo gets a deal from the devil from alice cooper and spends the entire episode looking for a pen to sign it we've made cheers references Mm -hmm. muppet show (laughs) references that's right i think there was a bonanza reference i believe that's that's correct we're old yeah wait wait till you get to my five minute bit on aftermash coming up here in a minute (laughs) i think everyone's gonna enjoy the jamie farr related humor Reed finally wakes up from his <laughs> drug haze and the end by the doors is playing softly in the background and <laughs> there's a black light poster of Hendrix on one wall. He hears through the vents and this is legitimately unsettling. Ben yelling like, Reed, where are you? Help me, Reed. Then Reed Richards finally has control of his stretchy body and slips out of the restraints and unstraps himself. And then he crawls through the vents following the sound of Ben Grimm's voice. And he looks down into the vent and he sees that Ben Grimm isn't just like the thing as we sort of expect to see the thing where he's like made a rock, but he's got fists and, you know, well-defined body parts and stuff. He's just like this half mass of rock that looks like... He is in constant pain. 
Yeah, he's a he's a large hulking figure. One might call him. <laughs> one might. He's like eight feet tall. I'll bet Ben likes being taller now. He was a short fella earlier. What's interesting in the comics, there's this whole bit about how Ben is upset about being the thing because he can't fuck, which is understandable that, you know, as a young man, he gets hit by the, these cosmic rays turned into a rock monster. And he's like, right. I can't ever do anything the rest of my life but be a rock monster. I guess they kind of allude to that in this scene, not the fucking part, but of just like reed you gotta help me reed is like well this looks like some business uh, i'm gonna fuck off and get out of here while the getting's good tom cruise and born on the fourth of july he couldn't fuck anymore because he was paralyzed from the waist down big penis mom big fucking erect penis <laughs> i remember seeing that in the theater and being like oh my god i can't believe people say that <laughs> Now I do it on the weekly on this show. Times have changed. Reed, as he's <laughs> as he's slinking his way out of the vents, again, Ben is just like, don't leave me, Reed. Where are you going? And it's, again, this is just like, man, this movie is so dark. And it shouldn't be. It's so goofy. You can't ground it in reality. The premise is incredibly dopey, and the execution is like the fact that Trent Reznor is not doing the soundtrack. <laughs> is a real disappointment reed richards are i won't call him hero our primary character he just leaves the film yeah he's like hey where did dr doom go oh uh, he just left the movie yeah that sounds good i'm just gonna go get some coffee for i don't know the next 30 minutes or so <laughs> I'm, I'm tagging out dr buster scrug shows up and he confronts dr franklin storm he's like where in tarnation is that no good lily liver two-faced walking talking real life stretch on strong dagnabbit dr storm is like i don't know where the fuck he is you're the military dude that's why you have us all in this top secret facility or whatever listen up here i got a plan i'm gonna go see ben Grimm, and he goes down and he's like hey look your pal reed 86 did out of here and we can find a cure for your no dick rockitis i'm sure but we need your help we need you play a little bit of ball with us if you become an indestructible war machine for us we'll see what we can do to help you out fade to black one year later yeah let's just jump ahead a year because nothing matters in this movie buster scruggs is narrating like this video of ben Grimm as the thing just picking up tanks and throwing them around you are never gonna believe this this little son of a bitch he has changed the nature of warfare we just dropped this big bastard into any war zone and he <laughs> does what i call fucking shit up he's ripping up tanks he's knocking down buildings in these shithole countries he's protecting the troops he's being a real patriot but it's not just him you know what we're gonna use science and horseshit movie nonsense and we've developed suits to allow johnny storm to fly like a rocket in the sky and shoot balls out of his hands ain't that a kicking ass boys in fairness michael b jordan seems to be the guy having the most fun with his powers i mean the only fun with his powers well, because he can set shit on on fire he becomes living flame of course he's having a blast and all the big brass are watching this video of him shooting fire and then dr buster scruggs he's like now lucky here this is his sister she's adopted well she can render other objects invisible and she can produce force fields now i know what you're thinking 
Although this will probably have relevance later in the movie. But don't worry, none of it will. I like the fact that most superhero movies spend, you know, 10, 15 minutes sometimes where the main character who has become a superhero has fun and explores their powers. Like in Spider-Man when uh, Tobey Maguire was trying to figure out how he could shoot webs out of his wrists and Iron Man blew shit up in his Iron Man suit before he got involved with Jeff Bridges and that whole business. And in this movie, it's just Buster Scruggs narrating that scene where he's just like don't worry about learning anything about these characters and how they perceive themselves and this terrible change that has been thrust upon them instead let me introduce you to planet zero which is what we call the hell dimension and we're gonna send a bunch of soldiers over there and unlock even bigger powers it's about the best dang plan in the whole dang world boys yeah <laughs> Yeah. After they go to this presentation or whatever, for no good reason, Buster Scruggs and his pal are flying back on some private jet, and there's a drone chasing them or something? Uh-huh. The guy's like, well, what, what is that stupid-looking plane doing outside our window? And Buster Scruggs is, says, don't you worry about it. I got ourselves a good old-fashioned surprise. Johnny Storm <laughs> just blows it the fuck up, and he goes, that's subject number two. Then we see Johnny Storm flying down a chute, apparently, that's been built into Area 57. And some dude is like, oh, you got to 20,000 feet in six seconds. He goes, hmm, I bet I can do it in five. Because this is something that should matter of him, like, constantly trying to improve himself. That doesn't. But it doesn't at all. Then Johnny Storm goes to check in on Sue Storm, who is hovering in a bubble shield over some concrete. He's like, hey, I think I'm just about ready to go help Ben out in the field. Mm -hmm. And Sue Storm is like, I'm not going to be a tool of the government. And he's like, hey, your wig is crooked. Yeah, let's. This is a reshoot to develop our characters or something. I don't know. And he says, Look, it's going to be years before we have a potential cure for whatever we are. And also, where the fuck did Reed go? Like, he was the guy that was supposed to help us with all this. And he got the hell out of here and never looked back. So right. I'm at least going to do something constructive with these powers I've been given. And by constructive, I mean decimate battlefields in third world country yeah and another thing man when buster scruggs goes to check in on ben he's like hey big guy how you doing somebody mentions that he has 43 confirmed kills uh-huh which not just suggests it states matter-of-factly one of our heroes in this movie has murdered 43 people yes that is some chickatillo numbers one of the greatest serial killers in russian history some of those let's be honest were probably in self-defense maybe but i mean he started it but they started fighting back. So, I mean, I mean, if that's what this movie is, then shouldn't there be sort of this redemption arc for Ben Grimm, where he goes from being this tool of the government, a hired killer, if you will, into being a hero? Again, that none of this ever happens. This is total Pick 6 brand fan fiction of like, hey, you know what would have made this movie at least tolerable? If all these characters like grew or changed in some way. Had motivation. Yeah. Did anything. Buster Scruggs brings a bunch of hoity-toity official types to meet Dr. Storm, who is working on the second version, V2, 
of the Bibiatron. Uh, he's like, well, Dr. Storm, tell him how close we are. Progress is really coming along. We're going to be able to send super soldiers to uh, Planet Zero any day right now. And Dr. Storm is like, that ain't going to happen, man. We're not that close. This thing fucking doesn't work. <laughs> well, I mean, what, what he means is we're closer than we ever were. In addition to building the second Bibiatron to create an army of super soldiers, your son, Michael B. Jordan, is now ready to go into the feet. Which, as close as this movie gets to motivating the characters to do stuff, is that Dr. Storm is now trying to prevent Johnny Storm from going into battle so he doesn't murder 43 people like Ben Grimm has. Because <laughs> with his competitive nature, he's going to slaughter 44 day one yeah how many did he kill i'm gonna burn down this whole fucking village like and there's gonna be no michael j fox to stop him i don't know if that was an 80s reference but it's in the ballpark and so dr storm then goes to sue in another scene that is so clearly added because of the wig and it's like hey we gotta we gotta cure all of you guys to keep johnny from going into battle and becoming a cold-blooded murderer but we need to find reed <laughs> She's like, Reed's never coming back. He like he he fucked off. He, he hasn't looked back once. And Dr. Storm is like, well, we've seen blips of Reed here and there, but we can't find. And then Sue says, a pattern. And you're just like, <laughs> oh, God, no. Oh, this is so bad. So they take her to the command uh, center where they just make Sue Storm a total narc. Where they're like, hey, you know, the guy that got cursed with these powers just like you and escaped this facility where he's being held like a prisoner can you find him so we can bring him back into this purgatory and uh, she's like yeah I think I can do that somebody get me some music they also tell her the only time he's surfaced is to look for scrap parts and Ben cut to Central America where a local fella is speaking Spanish and trying to buy a mechanical part from a local merchant and they exchange goods for services or however their economy works and then this local fella leaves and he drives off in his car and then this mysterious stranger as he drives away his face contorts back to the face of Reed Richards. So Reed Richards is traveling in disguise with the face of another human man. Why not just travel with that face all the time? I don't know. It's a fine question. Like, why not make your face look like Brad Pitt or George Clooney all the time? Or you know what? Why don't you show off and and turn your head into Rocky Dennis? Bring your A-game, Reed Richards. That was an 80s reference. <laughs> That was. Oh. You imagine if Rocky Dennis rolled into that mechanical side shop? Yeah, Sam Elliott's fixing his chopper outside the <laughs> shop. How you doing there, amigo? You got one hell of a forehead on you. Hey, you want to throw on a little uh, Bob Seger there, amigo? Play a little Fire Lake? Let me uh, take your scrub of ruddy ruddy red hair, jump on the back of his chopper. Maybe you and Laura Dern can find some love down by the lake. And then finally, of course, you die in a, in a tragic scene, but we all are better for having known you. That's <laughs> a better movie than this. Uh-huh. Oh, 100%. We cut to Reed Richards, and he's living in this ramshackled hut where he's wearing this suit that he's created that I guess will stretch with his stretchy body and he has pictures on the wall that look like the kind of like room that sasquatch hunters use as their bedroom and it's all these photos of ben Grimm as the rock monster essentially taking the place of bigfoot in that labored analogy and on reed richard's computer we see that he is building a quote single person shuttle end quote that looks like the big portal machine only smaller you know for a single person yeah and the more I think about it, that's a pretty good name for his device. It, not the solo Bibiotron. 
<laughs> and and this is the point that I mentioned earlier where Sue Storm finds this relay that shows an email named Captain Nemo or something. And she's like, that's him. And I like the fact that this scene that Dr. Storm is like, I know you just narked out a, a, a human being and put him in mortal danger, but you did what you had to do. Why is Reed Richards building a machine to go back to this other dimension? What will this possibly accomplish? Presuming for a second, Chad, he is going back to try to find Dr. Doom. You need at least two pods then. Is he thinking he's going to go back and find a cure? Maybe. I. Who knows? Like, nobody just says, here is what I'm trying to do. Whether he's got, like, a file that's like, here's how I'm going to change us all back into normal people. Something that just says what he's doing other than he's building a machine to go back to Planet Zero. The question is, well, then why? Well, you see, I went into this radioactive chamber and uh, with my friends, and when we came out, we are all now riddled with cancer. My plan is to go back into the chamber where I was filled with cancerous tumors, and I will there find a cure for cancer and bring it out to my friends. Right. I'm hoping to get (laughs) anti-cancer with a return trip. And then some cans or something jingle, and he's like, oh, oh my God, somebody's here. Instead of just changing his appearance and running off, he decides that he's going to fight these dudes. And in a scene that has all the action impact of, say, your Death Wish 4s or 5s, uh-huh. It's just him kind of bending around as people try to punch him and whatnot. It looks pretty cheap. It does. It looks real chintzy. And then he sees Ben Grimm and is like, oh my God, Ben, I've been looking for you. And Ben just headbutts him. Once again, our wilting violet of the film, Reed Richards, goes down like a sack of potatoes once more. Right. This is the point where I pointed out there are 30 minutes left in this movie and there is still no villain. Or plot. And so we, we take read back on the plane where he's trapped in some kind of plexiglass container so he can't stretch out of it ben is back in the cargo hold with him and reed is like i'm gonna fix us and ben's like that sounds like a lot of bullshit you ran off and left me behind as well as everyone else and so i've been doing what i gotta do to get by how is this reed richards fault i mean other than you know he called up ben on a drunken bender and said hey come down here we're gonna beep bop boop to another dimension he came down there he went there yeah i mean everybody's playing the victim in this movie i guess so everybody's climbing up on a cross and reed uh says you know ben you were my best friend and ben says i'm not your friend anymore you turn me into something else why does he not say you turn me into a thing here well because that would have made sense right it's one of those again another moment where you're just like why is nobody paying attention to this the fact that this is a fantastic four move we head back to area 57 they lock up reed richards i was like couldn't he squeeze through a keyhole like how skinny can he make his body we don't know because we never had that scene where you learn the limitations and the capabilities and right all, you know. all we had was buster scruggs being like well the invisible girl can make a bubble shield and reed richards is never even mentioned we don't know how cool his powers can get if if indeed they are cool at all here we kind of get the purpose of act three of this film sue storm comes in to see reed richards with her wig sue tells reed that if they can get back to planet zero then they can fix all this or something and then buster scruggs escorts reed richards into the room with the brand new go here or there and he's like ain't she a beaut 
read. Now, why don't you get in there and start using your smarting and your computing and your typing and your thinking and make this thing doodad its doodads like you did others. Yeah, and then Reed fixes the machine and they're going to be able to go to Planet Zero now. I do like the fact that Sue gives him a, a bit of an apology where she's like, hey, I'm sorry that I called the government on you, but we need your help opening up this gate. He's just like, you fucking narc. <laughs> like, I was trying to help us all and you fucked it up. Thanks, Sue. Thanks for nothing. Reed sees the new machine that they built and he's like, you made it ugly, which translated to me, these reshoots had a budget of like zero dollars compared to the rest of the movie. Yeah. One presumes he is, uh, of course, speaking of like, you, you took this thing that was supposed to be this pure invention and made it something industrial and militaristic or whatever but again there's just no basis for any of this and it's a line that feels like it should mean something and it doesn't then they, they're like well uh, we need this machine fixing he's like give me 10 minutes buster scruggs as a matter of fact is like well can't be that simple and he's like you're right uh, it may not take 10 minutes then he starts fixing some shit while dr storm goes to johnny storm and gives him a, a speech about like how he doesn't have to be a killer that the machine is almost ready johnny storm is like fuck you old man i'm finally making decisions for myself remember when you were trying to make me work off that car that i wrecked well that ain't me no more i'm now a living flame i can cast hellfire at all of my enemies and so back the fuck off old man and then johnny leaves and goes upstairs and sees reed and then for some reason they hug yeah that's weird i'd be pissed off of, of seeing reed again after he left for a year i'd at least have some questions right what have you been doing have you been doing anything to try to get us out of this mess do you know that we've been prisoners here for a year while you've been off playing you know mission impossible in south america the, anyway so they get this team of soldiers to go through the bibiotron and when they do reed sees you know the video feed from this galactic impossibility and he's like huh they've really done something with the place i can't put my finger on just what but somebody's been doing some landscaping and they're like, well, how? Like, what's different? And he's like, I don't know. Just something. Then one of the team says, uh, that, that's over on Planet Zero, is like, hey, we've got a heat signature moving toward us about 60 yards away. And it turns out, surprise, surprise, it's the villain of the movie, Dr. Doom, limping his way towards this craft. And they immediately bring him back, despite the fact that he looks like some kind of, you know, hellish robot. He kind of looks like the female villain from the end of Superman 3. Very much so. I, I understand that they're trying to update the look of dr doom somewhat yeah don't do that right just make it look like dr doom man it, it's fine he's like a werewolf but he doesn't have any hair yeah it's just like he's got kind of this green cloak but it's not exactly that you would expect to see from the dr doom character and it's kind of a metal face but it's not exactly and it just looks weird and they're like oh your bodysuit must have fused with your body to explain how you kind of look like dr doom but not really he look it looks like one of those old style like Iron Maidens or something. But he's also glowing kind of green. Yeah, he's kind of this gray metallic mummy with shimmering light emanating, you know, from the seams of his wrappings. Victor now has the power of the movie scanners, where he can just make people's heads explode like pumpkins filled with M80s, which is what he proceeds to do. It is the single best scene of the movie, hands down. It is the only time that I perked up and was like, what's going on here? Where he just walks through this place and makes the people's heads explode it's wonderful i i want michael ironside there to all veiny be yelling revok daryl revok i wanted it to be mark mckinney saying i'm crushing your head 
I'm crushing your head. <laughs> that would be pretty good, too. On the way, he he pops uh, Buster Scruggs' head. He does that very quickly. We just sort of dismiss one of our six people in this film. Right, from a character that's been gone for a third of the movie and just shows back up as a totally different character. God, this movie is such a mess. Our Fantastic Four are, like, getting out of their cells and whatnot and finally are like, hey, boy, some really crazy shit's popping off around here. Do you think we should do something with all our powers? What? is this a superhero movie come on and and so you've got ben and reed in one hallway and sue and johnny storm in another hallway dr franklin storm finally confronts doom who is on his way back to the Bibiatron. doom is like i'm going home and instead of just being like all right you know best of luck it seems like you've really been through some shit over there and if you're just <laughs> if you're gonna go home and just chill and think about what's happened here i understand dr storm says no 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 you can't do this we're we're stronger together because that is the theme maybe of this movie Uh, don't even try that and doom rather than popping his head off is just gives him a zap so that he's real fucked up but he's not totally dead doom goes back to the hell dimension johnny storm shows up in time to have dr storm tell him you've got to promise to take care of each other because that's the theme this movie i thought of just now i said the same thing to dr doom you should have been here and then doom sends the bye-bye back after he gets back to planet zero like he you know took the elevator up to the eighth floor and then just sent it back to the lobby or something that's polite yeah that's nice of him i'm so tired of saying this doesn't make any sense but right it, it none of none of the, this has a, any basis in motivation or if it does we just don't understand what his plan is until sue storm says out of nowhere oh he's creating a black hole thing like i said to reed richards at the beginning don't blame me for this. Right. And she's like, oh, everything's going to be pulled into this other dimension. And so we've got to go after him. And then a thing happens. Like it's a shaft of energy is, is flying up from the Bibiatron. And completely inexplicably, there is no discussion. There is no like, hey, here's how I think we can get to planet zero. She just makes a, a bubble shield around her and Reed and Ben. Yeah. And we. And then they just fly off and Johnny Storm flies after him like, hey, don't leave me out of this movie. They get to Planet Zero, don't know how, they just do. They can all breathe the air there? Right, they're not in suits or nothing, and then Reed, again, pulling shit out of his ass when they get to Planet Zero is like, Doom is the source of all the energy, so if we stop Doom, we'll stop the black hole. Yeah, it makes as little sense as everything else in this film. And so we have a moment where Johnny Storm attacks him, and Doom has one move, one and one only move in this movie. Head popping. Well, okay. Okay, two moves. One is head popping. Two is covering people in rocks. So he covers Johnny Storm in rocks. And then Ben attacks and Doom covers him in even bigger rocks Mm -hmm. until he can't move. And then Sue Storm is making this invisible barrier to, I think, keep stuff from getting sucked into the energy vortex or something. Well, back on Earth, trees and people and cars and concrete and dirt, they're all getting sucked up into this black hole over to planet zero. And then Doom throws a boulder at her because, again, this is his move here. Then Reed Richards calls out to him. Stop this, Victor. You stop it right Right now. No. No. And then Victor Von Doom responds, there is no Dana, only Zul. Wait, I got that wrong. He says, there is no Victor, only Doom. That that was his line. Yeah, that that's what happens. That is what happens in this film. 
Yes. And then Dr. Doom shoots some green stuff at Reed, which stretches him out so he can't move. And then there is this like private Ryan-esque landscape of a battlefield where Reed looks over his fallen comrades, where Sue is being crushed and Johnny Storm is covered in rocks and Ben is covered in bigger rocks. And then Reed literally pulls himself together Uh and launches himself at Dr. Doom and kind of uses himself to slingshot Doom over this cliff. Right. That This is the point where everyone kind of gets their shit together and like they shake off the rocks and whatnot. And Ben says, we can't beat Dr. Doom because he's stronger than any of us. But then Reed says, <laughs> man, not since the invention of the telegraph has a line been so telegraphed. He's stronger than each of us individually. But not, say, as a group. Wait, hold on, guys. I've, I've got an idea. Yeah, I've really stumbled on something here. <laughs> Thanks for bringing this up, Ben. I think you're going to be surprised at the spin <laughs> I put on this. Yes, he is stronger than any of us. You're right. You are right, Ben. But if. But. If. Just if. He might as well have a shitty little lapel mic and be giving a TED talk here. Yes, yes, he is stronger than any of us, but he's not stronger than all of us. (gasps) (laughs) Yes, so, oh God, it's bad. And then Reed rallies the team by saying like, this world gave us these powers. It's who we are now. We're a bunch of fucking freaks and we need to wrap our heads around that finally. Mostly I'm talking to myself here. I've really had a lot to deal with. I've been alone in South America. I've a lot of self-doubt. I got some self-esteem problems. You can see I haven't even tried to hit on Sue since I've been back. He says, we're going to stop Doom. And the coolest thing I think in the movie, other than Doom popping everyone's head off happens, which is where like Johnny Storm throws a fireball at Dr. Doom and Sue Storm creates a bubble shield around him so that when the fireball hits him, Doom is trapped in this bubble shield with this flame. And it's like, oh, they're working together and this is kind of cool. If this had happened at about the 45 minute mark. At the beginning of act two. Right. This would have been all right. So Ben, it turns Turns out has also been invisible this whole time. And when Doom busts out of the bubble shield, Ben appears out of nowhere, which why on earth even have him show up? Why not just let him hit him? Whatever. And then Ben yells, it's clobbering time and uppercuts Doom. (laughs) And knocks him into this energy beam that is, is flying up from the ground, I guess. And then Johnny Storm flies around and busts all these pillars that are around the energy field. And then Doom is just kind of incinerated by it. And then they fly back to Earth. Yeah. Hooray! I'm not trying to shorten it. It All of this happens in about 90 seconds? Maybe. I would probably cut it closer to 60. Yeah, it just, it, they get back to Earth somehow, and Area 57 is gone, and then they, there are literally two scenes left. One is, they meet with some officials who are like, hey, that was some good work saving the world. Uh, we're just gonna keep you on uh, the books as government contractors. They're like, fuck that. We are the most powerful beings on this planet and you're gonna do what we say now they're like we want to all work together and they're like all right we're gonna take you to central city which was the home base and research facility of the fantastic four in the original comics according to wikipedia and here reed richard says we need a name for all four of us and they just throw out a bunch of really stupid names and it's you all know we all know what's gonna gonna happen here and then reed tells ben 
he's like, wow, we've come a long way since the garage. And Ben says, yeah, it's fantastic. And then Lightbulb, Reed says, guys, I've got the perfect name for us. And then cut to black and we get the movie's title, Fantastic Four. Right. It's a real Monty Python. It's. That would have been a great ending for this movie. At least this movie has the decency chad to not even tease another film they knew better yeah there's no post-credits tag scene they don't like you know the fantastic four will return there's none of that it's just like hey this has been uh about 99 minutes so are we good can we just go now okay uh bye-bye then bye-bye tron fantastic four We'll see you never. I got to say, well, this movie's awful. I know that there is probably a 100% chance of there being a reboot of the Fantastic Four. As I mentioned in the introduction, there are rumors of a reboot taking place in the 1960s. I think that would be a lot of fun to see that as a way to frame up these characters and tell their origin story going forward. I didn't like this one for all the reasons we discussed, but really, I just think that it's just, let's write a, a script that is wrong headed that is miscast that has no action that has no fun or levity and wrap it up in a bow that's supposed to be a mainstream superhero film the biggest problem with this movie is it's just not any fun these are not the characters that you do a gritty reboot with you do that with batman hell you can even kind of do it with superman as that Zack snyder movie attempted to do but the fantastic four they're just so natively dumb and i don't think that's a bad thing you know like there's something to be said for that kind of golden age of comics and the and the the purity of it there is a movie to be made about how the fantastic four is about a bunch of misfits who come together who discover that individually they are outcasts and freaks and laughed at and and scorned but together they are something special and that they have each other to rely on isn't that the incredibles yeah but the incredibles is essentially fantastic four you know it's just the good (laughs) version of it it's a really frustrating movie because I'll, I'll go for anything. Again, it's the Shazam effect of like, I don't give a shit about Shazam, but watching that movie made me care about not just the character of Shazam, but the underlying story and the relationships between all the characters. Like you can take a kind of goofy premise. And if you treat it with a little bit of a wink, knowing that, yeah, this is kind of a goofy premise, but we can do something meaningful with this. And I would argue that's kind of the theme of the Fantastic Four of, here is this goofy underlying thing what you know these these crazy powers of i'm a stretchy man and i can turn invisible but you can do something with that and make it feel like relevant and interesting and and give it an emotional heft and none of that happens in this movie and it it feels like it is trying so desperately to be a dark knight-esque body horror almost take on the material that it forgets that people just want to come to a movie like this and have a good time i think ang lee's hulk is a more entertaining comic book movie than this Absolutely. I mean, it's it's grim, but also the Hulk is a character that you can kind of get into that grimness with because it's basically Jekyll and Hyde, whereas this movie has no such character, you know? Yeah. 
And and Doctor Doom is just so horribly mishandled. He should be the Latvian dictator who hears about this project. Not the hipster, alcoholic, social crusader. Is Doctor Doom hears about this, sends his Doombots to steal... Doombots, by the way, are a thing in the comics. Uh, sends his Doombots to steal this machine so that he can be the one that goes to this other world so he can get insurmountable powers. He does, he gets some powers. The Fantastic Four have to come together to defeat him before he can take over the world which is his ultimate ambition that that's a fantastic four movie like i did in you know eight seconds that's all you have to do to make a good fantastic i think you could have done it in seven maybe next time (laughs) yeah maybe next time johnny storm speaking of next time bo would you care to introduce what we will be discussing on our next episode of pick six movies as we continue this theme of not that one this one yeah next time around chad we are going to be taking a look at the the wicker man no not that one chad not the good one that features christopher lee in a fantastic performance no the other one that one directed by neil labute famous misogynist neil labute Mm -hmm. and it stars nicholas cage and for those who have seen the movie and frankly people who haven't seen the movie will note uh, the nicholas cage meme that came from this film in which he shrieks the bees the bees not the bees that remake of wicker man it is certainly more entertaining than this movie that's not hard to believe because nicholas cage is bonkers in it and that's always fun we'll come back next week we will continue this season as always you can send us an email at pick six movies at gmail.com again as always if you like the show if you're enjoying it have a good time you can either let us know but more importantly just tell a friend um we have a blast doing it and we really appreciate you taking some time and uh and to listen to all of our shenanigans yeah flame off (laughs) oh i gotta go comb my wigs